This week's guest is an author, public speaker, healthcare futurist, and hospital administrator who believes our current healthcare system is broken beyond repair. So, what does he recommend? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. This episode is being brought to you by our friends at Fresh Benny's. Your clients have growing benefit challenges, not to mention tapped out healthcare budgets. We can't increase those budgets, but we can help you to solve some of the challenges. What are they? And what are the solutions? Join Reed Rasmussen and the Fresh Benny's team for a brand new 30-minute webinar where they will share five specific challenges and solutions. To register, just click the Fresh Benny's logo on the ShiftShapersOnline.com website or visit info.freshbennies.com forward slash ShiftShapers. Fresh Benny's, a fresh approach to benefits. On this episode of Shift Shapers, we're visiting with Dr. Josh Luke, who is an author, public speaking, healthcare futurist, and hospital CEO. So how he's found the time to actually do this interview is beyond me, but we're very pleased to have him here. Josh, in in a few of his books, and I've seen his stage presentation a couple of times, talks about how the system is broken and beyond repair, and then talks a lot about, you know, what if anything we can do about it? And Boy, that should fill 20 minutes very easily. So with that, welcome, Josh. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, we appreciate it. So talk a little bit about your journey and your background and kind of how you came to be doing what you're doing now. Yeah. So, David, it's actually the road less traveled, if you will. You know, when I was in high school, I had two older brothers that were professional athletes. And I remember sitting on the bench during my varsity basketball game, watching my teammates play and thinking, hey, maybe I should have a backup plan for my career (laughs) other than being a professional athlete. So I I set my sights on working in sports marketing. That was kind of my fallback plan, my dream, and was having a lot of success doing that out of grad school. But then when I got married, at the same time, my grandmother was sick and going back and forth from a hospital to a nursing home to assisted living. And it really changed my perspective on my career and 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 really gave me the motivation to want to move into a career path that had more of a social mission where I could make a difference in life. And so I found myself being trained to be a nursing home administrator. And after doing that for a few years, I got the opportunity to go run a small hospital in Southern California as its CEO and did that for four years and then jumped over to another hospital in Southern Cal for three more years. And that really launched me into a acute hospital executive career for about 10 years before I left to found a not-for-profit to really teach people how to transform healthcare and drive the cost down. So that's kind of where I'm at today, as you mentioned, an author, podcaster, speaker on how to not only transform care delivery to focus on the patient, but also to drive the cost down for individuals and for businesses. All of that is needed. Let's let's go backwards before we go forwards. We, we've gone from Marcus Welby, the kindly family doctor, to this dog's breakfast of medicine and insurance that we have today. What the hell happened? You know, I, I, I'm not the probably the one to answer that, but I do my best job of providing a historical evolution of a broken healthcare system. And in my book, Health Wealth is Healthcare Bankrupting Your Business from Forbes, I really, I think, even call one of the chapters a system broken beyond repair. 
because I believe that it is broken beyond repair. And I believe that, you know, a lot of people believe that insurance ruined healthcare. I, I think there's, there's an argument to be said for that. I would also argue that the lack of transparency from the acute hospital sector, of course, I was a part of that for years, has contributed largely. But the one thing that I think we can do about it, really, Dave, is this, is we need the other factors, us as consumers, we've always been led to believe that our insurance will pay for it, which is a myth. I call those the eight words that killed American healthcare, right? Don't worry, your insurance will pay for it. We've been duped into thinking our insurance will pay for it, but that's not the case. So we're also culpable as as consumers, as employees, we have to engage in the healthcare process. And that's what my last two books, Health Wealth is the name of the series. I gave you one name already, but the, the more recent book is called Health Wealth for You. They were both bestsellers on Amazon, but they both really emphasize that you as the consumer or the employee have to become what I call an EHC, an engaged healthcare consumer. And once we do that, that's the final step in bringing the, the cost of healthcare in America down. So it, we had an affordability problem. We had a greed problem. We're now adding millennials who look at insurance differently. How do those three things create the nexus for getting us where we are today? I think that's a great question, Dave. And, and, and somebody asked me on a different podcast a couple of weeks ago, hey, Josh, is, is, is requiring hospitals to post prices really going to make a difference? And, and, and I hadn't been asked it that directly on the spot before. And, and it made me really think, and the answer is yes, because it starts with hospitals being held accountable to post prices and pharmaceutical companies. Once that's done, and there's now a requirement for those things, but it's, it's difficult because they put it in a foreign language and make it technical. Well, the feds will tighten that up so it's an understandable language or universal codes or something. And in a year or so, when that's done, the next step will then be, hey, holding insurers accountable. So once we get the, the hospitals and the pharma to post prices, we've, we've got the providers being transparent now. Now we go to the insurer, the middleman, the carrier, the health plan, whatever it might be, and we, we can finally figure out what they're actually paying, how much their profit margins are, and hold them accountable in a transparency approach as well. And the final step, as I mentioned earlier, is the consumer. And the consumer now, okay, engaging in the process is important, but you mentioned millennials. Millennials are now the largest generation in the American workforce, and they've always looked at healthcare differently than us as, as Gen Xers and boomers because it doesn't make any sense to them why we're paying so much. And the final point I'll make on, on the generational approach, Dave, is this. My kids are Gen Zs. And in a few years, when, when they get out of college and for the first time in their life have to think about paying for health insurance on their own, when they come to me and say, hey, dad, I have no interest in health insurance. We all, we've all heard Dave Chase say a minimum of 50% of a millennial's lifetime earnings will go towards health care. So when your kid that's Gen Z, the next generation comes and says, I have no interest, nor will I pay for health insurance. How can you argue with that? Because I can't. And as a father, I want to, but I can't. There's no argument logically to convince your kid to take one of every $2 he or she earns in her lifetime to put it towards a broken health care system. There's no question. It, it's a huge hurdle. It defies logic. And I, I think that's why so many folks have been befuddled by it and why a lot of people have just kind of been silently twirling like a top and cursing the system because I don't think they, they don't understand yet how much of the control is in their hands. And you point out a number of situations in your book where that's the case. And I'd like to spend the majority of our time talking about some of the steps that EHCs can take to 
move the system in the direction that we all know we need it to be in so that when your Gen Z kids need health care, they'll have it available in some kind of a mode that makes sense to them. So what's the biggest first step that consumers can take? Well, we've already talked about becoming an EHC, becoming an engaged healthcare consumer. And if you need a little more detail on that, guys, you shop for houses, you shop for cars. Why don't you shop for healthcare? It's time that we started doing that. In the two health wealth books, there's up to 11 different steps. There's actually more, but we really branded and went into great detail on 11. And and one of the the simplest ones is telehealth and remote monitoring. And, And I'll be the first to tell you as a Gen Xer, as a hospital CEO, I had to be convinced that telehealth was going to work on a consumer basis. You know, I I understood where it was going to work within my hospital when I couldn't get a certain type of doctor to come and I could just patch them in on a video. But in terms of in my home, from my phone, from my iPad, from my television, whatever it might be, from my laptop, consulting with a physician, it took me a few years to finally be willing to do that. And the second I did, my kids were looking at my wife and I going, you guys are crazy to think that canceling half a day's worth of plans, calling in sick to work, taking one of your kids to a German-fested doctor's waiting room, the receptionist you know, making you feel bad because you didn't have an appointment and telling you they'll try to squeeze you in, but you're going to have to wait an hour or two. The doctor spends, what, a whole minute or two with you, but looks at his or her phone the whole time, hands you a piece of paper with a prescription. Let me tell you the new alternative and why millennials and Gen Zs look at us like we're crazy to think that that's a better approach for a simple cough or waking up with strep throat. My daughter woke up a few months ago and said, hey, I got a sore throat. Within 10 minutes, within our cost sharing plan, and that's a, I'll expand on cost sharing in a minute, within our cost sharing plan, Teladoc's free. So she went online and said, hey, I need a doctor's consult. Within eight minutes, a doctor popped onto her phone. We stood in our kitchen. She answered a few questions. And the doctor said, okay, I just called your prescription in or sent the prescription to your pharmacy. It says it'll be ready in 15 minutes. Now, you'll love this next part, Dave, because as you know me, and some of your listeners may not know me as well, but you know I am the the king, the champion of pulling back the curtain on the fee-for-service era and, and pointing out all the things that were wrong with it. But I actually caught myself on that telehealth call saying to the doctor, hey, doc, don't we know to need to go to the lab first? And the doctor said, no, I asked your daughter a series of questions. She told me the answers. I know that what she's suffering from is one of these two or three things. And the medicine I prescribed will resolve each of them in time. And I remember thinking to myself, gotcha. I caught myself being poisoned with the capital P by the fee-for-service era, thinking there were additional steps in the process that needed to be done in order for my daughter to improve her health. That was not the case. It was a result of me being poisoned just as every single individual, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, who worked in the fee-for-service era was poisoned by the overutilization, overprescribing, overtesting. I learned in that quick 30-second exchange from a doctor that he did not need that extra step to know what needed to be done to help my daughter feel better. Well, and, and that's evolving. I mean, I know that you know Samir Kamar out at MedLion, and he's just put on the market this device called MedWand, which you may have seen already. I haven't. I've only talked to him and seen photos of it. I have not seen it yet. It allows folks who are doing docs, who are doing telehealth to have this unit in the hands of the consumer and it's very reasonably priced and it gives them all kinds of additional data and telemetry that they can't get just from looking at a patient. I think there's 11 different functions that it provides. So clearly that part of the system is working and it's working well because it's being expanded and you put four or five of those in a, in a quiet room in an employer, and you've got the closest thing that most employers will ever be able to get to an on-site clinic. 
So it's great. And, and, you know, we've all, I think most people have used it now and starting to expand into mental and, and behavioral health. And that's also a good thing. But I wonder between that and going to a doctor's office, a traditional doctor's office, where do you believe direct primary care fits? Yeah, and that's a great question because really there's no such thing as a personal family physician anymore with the exception of direct primary care practices. And for your listeners who aren't completely familiar, you've heard of concierge medicine, direct primary care. You know, I like to think of it as kind of a happy medium between concierge medicine and the traditional family practitioner we used to have growing up. These direct primary care clinics are are placed in communities where there's a large employer that wants access for their employees on a walk-in basis and allows the doctor to spend a few more minutes with the patient, develop a relationship. They cap the number of patients they see. You know, my biggest concern about direct primary care is it's really a throwback to what the personal family physician used to be. My biggest concerns are this. Number one, there's no such thing as here's what direct primary care looks like because it looks different in every clinic. The old saying is, if you've seen one, you've seen one. The other thing with direct primary care is people are trying, starting to take that name and apply it to things that aren't exactly direct primary care DPC. And so it's really watering down what the original intent of the DPC movement is. There's some great DPC clinics. Imagine MD out of the Chicago area is one of the leading ones nationally. You have some out here in in California that are doing well as well. But DPC is definitely part of the future, but it's going to take the employer who has a large concentration of employees in one location or in one city to say, hey, this is a better way to provide care, primary care to our employees, but also we can save a boatload of money each year by just contracting with one doctor and driving all of our patients, our employees there instead of to a number of doctors the way we've been doing it for years. And now a word from our sponsor. In a world where healthcare budgets are tapped out and advisors still need to solve pressing benefits problems, one man stands out. Reed Rasmussen is Fresh Benny's man, helping you and your clients control healthcare and keep America safe for brokers. All kidding aside, as we approach that time of year, your clients are paying for increasingly expensive health plans, but employees still have gaps in care and they're paying more out of pocket than ever before. Fresh Benny's has identified benefit challenges you're probably not solving, but you can. Join Reed and the Fresh Benny's team for a 30-minute webinar that will arm you with solutions to simplify the healthcare experience, deliver a great ROI, and boost any benefits package all within your clients' budgets. So before you book those renewal meetings, attend this webinar. Just click the Fresh Benny's logo on the ShiftShapersOnline.com page or visit info.freshbennies.com forward slash shift shapers to register. And be sure to tell Fresh Benny's man, read hi for me when you're on the webinar. This preview has been rated R for Rock Those Renewals and is suitable for all client audiences. So let's circle back. You mentioned cost sharing plans. For the folks who maybe have not heard of those, what are they? How do they work? Yeah, so as much as a Republican majority after President Trump was elected was unable to undo the ACA, they tried three times and then they all kind of said, hey, now it's it's my neck on the line if we keep trying, so let's put healthcare on the back burner for a while. But what they've done, which I think was probably the logical approach to, from the beginning, is they've kind of peeled back some of the things that either weren't working or really problematic 
from the get-go. The mandate was the first thing that they came out and said, hey, no more mandate, but also the loosening of associations and cost sharing and and the minimum essential coverage clauses. And there's the courts are still going back and forth on those. But what's happened is if you haven't ever heard of MediShare, M-E-D-I Share, it's a Christian-based, faith-based cost sharing program. It's not regulated or governed by the Department of Insurance. It's really kind of a leap of faith. I have a whole chapter on that in each of my health wealth books. My brother, who was a professional baseball player for years and then became an entrepreneur, approached me about eight years ago to find out what I knew about MediShare. That was really my first introduction to it. He swears by it. been a member now five or six years. I recently joined a Sedera Health product, and Sedera, if you're unfamiliar, is S-E-D-E-R-A Health, is a non-faith bit affiliated cost-sharing plan. And there's a neat one that I joined called Fit Health, which is based out of Southern California here, which is a cost-sharing plan that really was created for people who are fitness enthusiasts or really want to focus on their health. And what's cool about it is we get all these educational resources and materials through the email, either weekly or a couple times a month. And if you're on LinkedIn, please connect with me, Dr. Josh Luke. But Ryan Miller was the founder of Fit Health. He's very active on social media, too, and he's really created something new through Sedera Health as a cost-sharing plan. I'm really encouraged by cost-sharing. The one thing I will tell you about cost-sharing, I'm paying $585 a month for a family of five. I was paying three times that before. Every time I walk into a doctor's office, I tell them I do not have insurance, which is true. I have cost sharing plan, which is is not insurance. It's you know, we can go into greater detail in the book. But without hesitation, Dave, do you know what they say when I say that? They go, oh, well, we have a 30 percent discount for people who don't have insurance. I didn't even ask for a discount and I'm getting offered it when you total up the amount of -of out-of-pocket dollars I've spent on healthcare since I switched to a cost-sharing plan, it's 60% less than it was when I was with one of the traditional Buka insurers. There's, I mean, we could do a whole program on on cost-sharing plans and and kind of the direction they're going, but I wanted to touch on a couple of other areas from the book. One is we, we all know, especially those of us listening to the podcast, my audience, that medications are a key cost driver, especially as the population ages. We have folks managing multiple chronic conditions. We have new designer drugs and injectables coming on the market. You talk about alternate approaches to buying medication. What are those alternate approaches and why do they matter? I'm going to answer that question in, in two ways. I'm, I'm a huge, huge believer in DNA testing and full genome sequencing, particularly as it relates to pharmacogenetics. I've, I've talked to enough doctors who say, hey, this is science. There's nothing hypothetical about it. You get a, a roadmap of your body through a DNA test or a genome sequence, and it shows you exactly which medications your body metabolizes and at what doses. It also shows you which ones that your body doesn't metabolize. I've had people approach me as I left the stage after doing a keynote with that look in their eye with their waters tearing up saying what you talked about with full genome sequencing and pharmacogenetics changed my life, whether it was 23andMe or Helix or Color or Genealogy, any of these. That's not the point. The point is the technology's there. The provider community hasn't necessarily embraced it, but when a consumer does, I've seen, you know, nothing short of miracles happen at times. People who are on seven medications within six months go down to zero medications and feel better than they ever have. So that's one thing I would say, look into that. There's a whole chapter on genome sequencing and DNA testing and also the microbiome, which is how your gut metabolizes food in the book. But in terms of alternative approaches to medication, I really was forced to become an EHC 
when I joined a cost sharing plan, because cost sharing, really, you aren't insured. It's really more catastrophic, right? Mine doesn't kick in until a single episode costs me a thousand bucks. So every penny I spend is a penny I spend. And so with that, I went to GoodRx, a website that basically was just a price comparison, typed in my zip code, and there it was. It said, hey, if you order via mail, it's X amount of dollars and it'll be there tomorrow or the next day. If you want to go to Costco or Price Club or, or Sam's Club, well, Price Club, I dated myself there, huh? Here's what it would cost. If you go down to your neighboring CVS is on this, at this address and that address, here's what it would cost. And, and so it left it up to me. And there's several other platforms out there that are similar. There's there's hundreds of technologies. If you swim in the circles that Dave and I do go into events every month or so with other enthusiasts on driving the cost of healthcare down, whether they're brokers or PBMs or, or, or TPAs or benefits advisors, you see all these different technologies which are making medication more accessible. And as, as, as much as it's been a struggle for the Trump administration to address healthcare costs. The one place that I have seen progress is on pharmaceutical pricing, even though they've taken some hits in the courts, they're not relenting. And the one thing I'll point out, and I have an article coming out this week on on LinkedIn and my newsletter about this, there's a reason that that the pharmaceutical price transparency mandate was an executive order that required nothing but the president's signature. And that's because the four largest lobbies in our country if not the four largest, four of the the largest, pharmaceutical, health insurers, hospitals, American Medical Association physicians. The four largest lobbies all are donating to politicians on both sides of the aisle. So no politician wanted to stand up and champion this driving the cost of health care down for those four lobbies. So the president essentially said, I don't need their money. I'll do it. Sign an executive order. And, and you know, I can only imagine politicians on both sides of the aisle talking out of both sides of their mouth, whispering to the president, thank you, but then telling those four lobbies, well, I wasn't a part of it, so keep donating to my campaign. I think it was very interesting that that was done through an executive order for that reason. Yeah, they're, they're very adept at assuming what I call the Washington position, which is straddling the fence while keeping their ear to the ground. It, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing to see. I like it. I like it. We've got a couple of minutes left. Where do you see the future? What do you see the near term and the longer term? Where, where are we going? You know, that's a couple of shows together. And I know you share the same enthusiasm I do, Dave, for, for just fixing this broken system. I'm on social media pretty much five, seven days a week, but I'm sharing stories five or six days a week. And I love to share short form stories as well as to write my own, as I just mentioned. What I mean by short form is I take stories from modern healthcare. I take stories from the employee benefit news. I take stories from, you know, all kinds of different home health magazine, nursing home magazines, Politico. And when I think they're relevant to, to those of us that are on the, the front lines of this war against healthcare costs, I share it with a brief comment. And what I see each day when I headline grab is that the pricing transparency is absolutely the theme in 2019. The other theme that I would say is kind of a secondary theme this year is direct contracting between employers and health systems, essentially cutting out the middleman, which is the, the health plan, the insurer. I, I hypothetically have discussed in the past, Dave, I imagine a rural community where if you were to, to take every dollar spent on health care, kind of do the assessment like the Health Rosetta folks do, just like you do in your home, right? Every year mm-hmm. you assess your budget. You say, what, are, what are, every penny we spend, what are we spending on and should we cut back? If a rural community were to do that, 
I just wonder how much of their healthcare spend is leaving that community, a community that needs jobs, a community that has an unemployment problem, a community that is spending 40% of every dollar on healthcare is leaving that community to some middleman somewhere in Minnesota or New York or Nashville or Louisville, who knows where. What if we could recreate that model in a rural area? And you know who's trying to do that in a not so rural basis is Amazon and the folks at Haven Health. So I'm really encouraged about the future of the delivery model, but I think it's a complete restart. I think companies as big as Apple, Disney, some of these companies, Tesla, that have taken at Walmart, that are taking on this issue saying, hey, it's our second largest expense in our business and it's going to run us bankrupt. If those companies can't afford it, then none of us can. And so I'm encouraged by the fact that they've been willing to take a leadership position. I'm excited about what Haven Health is going to do. I think it's going to take a few years, but I think you're going to see within three or four years, the big health carriers who have never had any reason to be concerned about anything because their profits are through the roof, start to really assess and say, okay, it's time for us to, to step back and be a little more transparent about what we're doing because we have some competition now. All good things. And, and I think we've just scratched the surface. I, I'd be honored if you'd come back for, for another bite at the apple with us in the not too distant future. But that's all the time we have for this podcast. Josh Luke, author, public speaker, healthcare futurist, hospital CEO, and all around great thinker. Thanks so much for being with us and for sharing your expertise with our audience. I'd love to come back on the show anytime, folks. You can find me on LinkedIn or at drjoshluke.com. And if you're on Twitter, it's at joshluke4health. That's the number four, joshluke4health or drjoshluke.com. Thanks so much for having me. Great conversation. Our pleasure. Thanks. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Strategic Vision Publishing and David Saltzman. This podcast may not be reproduced in any form, in whole or in part, without the express written permission of the producers. All rights reserved. 